Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome to this week's installment of the show. I'm Adam Proctor, your host. Joining me this week is Angela Nagel. We're going to talk about the dead end of the culture wars. Angela knows more about the alt-right than pretty much anyone else around. Stay tuned. She gives a master class on political strategy and our current era. What's driving me crazy is that photo right there. Zoom in on that. It's one of those cops in a black uniform with a mustache. You know that guy's a coward. You know he's a piece of garbage. You know he's weak. And the cops all just roll over to it. Oh, you got a mustache. I'll just worship you. Oh, you got a mustache. It's okay. Oh, your demonic little mustaches. You scared me so bad. Oh, I just, oh, you scared. Scum. Scum. That totally reasonable tirade was brought to you by friend of the show, Alex Jones. As most of you know by now, Mr. Jones is being eaten alive in divorce court. It was kind of his destiny. You had to see it coming. In any case, welcome everybody to the show. This is part three of a series that I'm running right now. Part one featured Christian Parenti. We talked about... Free speech. We talked about more specifically the far left origins of free speech and why it's really important to our movements for us to protect it and defend it and organize for real power. Part two featured Freddie DeBoer. Had a really fantastic discussion with Freddie about you know the vagaries of the online left, the extremely online left, uh, some of the neuroses of the campus left, and how to organize once again for real power. So here we are, people. Part three, the one you've been waiting for. I brought Angela Nagel on the show because I felt like she could really tie this series together in a really productive sort of way. Admittedly, uh, the last two episodes, I've kind of gotten into the weeds a little bit about the Twitter wars and the intra-left sort of uh, clusterfuck. Well, this week, we're going to get out of that. Angela provides a masterclass on how to transcend the impasse presented by the culture wars. You gotta listen to the whole thing. Uh, This episode is a little bit on the longer end. I try to keep my interviews, you know, around an hour or so because I understand people's attention spans (laughs) are suffering. I know mine is in our current climate. And uh, I want people to listen. But, you know, I didn't break this up into parts because that can get a little bit tedious. But I did cut it down uh, by 20 or 30 minutes or so. So if you want to hear the full-length interview, I cut out some pieces that I felt were a little bit, you know, less than essential, but they're still really great. And if you want to hear the full interview, you've got to join my Patreon. Uh, I'm I'm really grateful to the subscribers that I have right now. They mean the world to me. Uh, It's a big boon uh, to my confidence in terms of uh, continuing to churn out these episodes for you guys to keep them coming. So if you like what you hear on the show, if you want to support the politics that we're putting forth here on the Dead Pundit Society and forging a new left agenda, 
check us out on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash deadpundits. Once more, that's patreon.com slash deadpundits. You can subscribe at the $3, $5, or $8 a month level. Whatever you can afford to give to the show, I really appreciate it. And as a special gift, you'll receive the full-length interview that you're about to hear with Angela Nagel. So if you're one of my fantastic Patreon subscribers, a member of the Dead Pundit Society, go on over to Patreon right now and listen to the full-length interview. For the rest of you, without further ado, here's Angela Nagel. What is the alt-right? I get asked this question a lot, so I'm going to try to go through it real fast because I think everyone assumed that there's a bunch of Nazi nuts who aren't going to do anything, and then Trump was their Hitler, and then they won. So they go, wait a minute, 50% of the country can't be Nazis. Maybe I got this alt-right thing wrong. Yeah, you did. Welcome back to the show. Joining me today is Angela Nagel. She's a brilliant cultural critic. She's an author. She has pieces in the Baffler magazine, Jacobin, among many others. Uh, And she's recently the author of the book, Kill All Normies. That's going to be out from Zero Books in May. Uh, It'll be out in your bookshops. How are you doing today, Angela? Hi, thanks for having me. So lots to talk about. I originally scheduled my last series of interviews with Christian Parenti and Freddie DeBoer, where we talked about similar topics. I scheduled those interviews before the Berkeley skirmish. So we have much to talk about this time around. Where were you when the skirmish happened and what was your immediate take? I was actually in Kinsale in uh, rural coastal Ireland and I didn't have any internet access. Um, So I did not know what was going on. I remember I got, you know, I could get a little bit here and there and uh, I checked Twitter and I could see all of the alt-right people that I, <laughs> I, I follow, um, Richard Spencer and people like that, gloating about something and saying, you know, we beat them and um, today was a glorious day and this kind of thing. So I knew something terrible had happened and I, I gathered it was some kind of a riot, but I didn't know what it was about. So I actually had to sort of catch up on it days later. So for, for my listeners who ha- aren't familiar with you or your work, uh, you, you've done the podcast circuit. You, you did Chapo, so that means you know at least like half a million people have uh, heard you by now, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in case you're not familiar with my guest, Angela, you spend way too much time on Twitter uh, sort of uh, following the alt-right, the alt-light, and, and all of the other types of folks. And you spend so much time on 4chan and Reddit and Twitter, I thought maybe you would have gotten some kind of spidey sense uh, when, the, when the skirmish went down, like a tingle, even if you were you know sort of out of internet reach. Yeah, I mean, they were, you know, for actually for weeks beforehand, uh, there was an awful lot of talk among alt-right people about, you know, we're going to have to start arming ourselves, we're going to have to start getting violent, mm-hmm. uh, because there had been so many things that happened before then, where they weren't organized, and the, the protesters, for example, at Berkeley, uh, when Milo was due to speak, you know, clearly they were the dominant group. So yeah, they had been discussing it for weeks, sometimes joking about it in that way that they do, where they actually mean it. Um, right. You, you never can tell, though, can you? That's that's kind of the thing that. Yeah, I mean, concerning. at this at this point, I just think you know, if you still think this is for the lulls, then mm-hmm. you know, then you're being the useful idiot of the people way to the right of you. I think that's definitely true. Of like recently, I saw a video done by Gavin McInnes. And he was explaining the difference between the alt-right and the alt-light. And he had like a pink half and a blue half. And then he had this very narrow little 
brown uh, bar at the side for the Nazis, you know. Uh. And he was saying, oh, they're just, they're probably all spies and there's only five of them and this kind of thing. And I just thought, okay, I, I genuinely don't know. Is he still deluded about this and he still thinks oh we're just all doing it for a laugh you know and he he was saying things like that he was saying you know you liberals you know we, we just uh, post pictures of hitler because we know it annoys you that kind of thing and i just thought no that that's clearly not true like a uh, rebel media for example did a video about the alt right and the whole there was like thousands of comments underneath and it was all about the Jewish, you know, head of rebel media and the Jewish guy making this uh, young man say this. And, you know, then, of course, all the racist vile against the the guy um, who who was doing the video. And, you know, I just think I just can't really believe that anyone who is in the middle of this culture still thinks that there isn't a very significant, very far right contingent that really mean it, you know. Right, so I want to get into the the various players and the in the in the strata of of the alt right alt light that that whole movement um, that you talk about in your book, but let's let's backtrack just really quickly. So you've covered this ground in your articles that I will link in the show notes for sure. You've had a couple pieces out, paleo cons for porn in yeah. Jacobin, which is one of the better titles of any article that's ever been out. <laughs> um, a lot of folks will have seen that by now, and in a couple other pieces in the bathroom, you spell out the birth of the movement. And so in your book, you begin (laughs) by producing this really interesting sort of lineage. And you start with Coney 2012. Yeah. And you end with Dicks Out for Harambe. Yeah. In in 2015, 2016. So so maybe start with Coney 2012 and talk to me about why you you chose that as as a sort of like formative moment in uh, this cultural shift. Okay, because what I was thinking is that Irony is so central to all of this. And the reason that nobody knows what's going on and nobody knows who's for real, who's really a Nazi, who's really on the far right, is because internet culture is so laden with irony and with, you know, playfulness and tone that it makes it very hard to know. And within that kind of irony is also kind of a deep cynicism, you know, so it's like, I thought the Coney thing was funny because I remember when it happened, loads of people that I know who would never share something like that now were all sharing it and going, oh, this is you know really important that we all get behind this. <laughs> you're, you're almost a monster if you didn't. So explain to, yeah. to, to if, if somebody was living under a rock in, or if they're in solitary confinement in 2012, 2013, and they don't know what Coney 2012 was, maybe explain that a little bit, how that unfolded. Okay, so it was a video that was made about a campaign to arrest and to stop, I suppose, uh, Joseph Coney, who was a kind of a war criminal. And the idea now, of course, that a bunch of like Western kids on, on, on Facebook or whatever would be able to just click this thing and stop these kind of major like complex African political rivalries and, and territories and things like that, that that we would be able to have influence on that level now seems really naive. But at the Mm -hmm. time, people actually did, you know, people still very earnestly did these things and and, and clicked on whatever it is that you were trying to to stop or to promote. 
And so within a very short time, two days or something like that, all the criticisms started to come out of the Coney thing. Everyone had shared it and said, you know, yes, this terrible man must be stopped. Critics said that, the, that this was just a kind of clicktivism and, mm-hmm. you know, that this campaign was all about the, the vanity of the Western filmmaker, that kind of thing. And then the the Western filmmaker had some kind of a breakdown and ended up like running around naked, like masturbating. <laughs> yes. And and then I remember course- <laughs> that because they were going campus to campus in a tour bus, right? In the yeah. like the was it the Lost Children or some, something? Yeah, to that effect. yeah, yeah. And and you know he was showing this to campus kids, you know, who just really got off on this stuff, the slacktivism, clicktivism that you talk about. Mm. Yeah, and he had a breakdown on, on his tour bus and was mm. running around naked, screaming that God was talking to him or something. Yeah, and so I just thought it was a nice example of a kind of broader trajectory, which is from that very earnest kind of like Obama moment, you know, where mm-hmm. where people were all virtue signaling, but. You know, people wanted to share in these kind of really positive moments and, you know, didn't feel, I suppose, the weight of some cynic kind of, um, uh, right. you know, telling them they're wasting their time or whatever. Uh, but then how quickly it went from that really earnest kind of clicktivism to the, the fun of watching someone humiliate themselves and the kind of a, the group, you know, pack sort of fun of of observing this humiliation and, you know, which has become this kind of unstoppable force online. You know, the, there seems to be kind of no end to the amount of entertainment we can get from watching someone humiliate themselves. So I thought that was just a nice example of, you know, a, a kind of a, a tragic uh, absurdity. And, you know, that's kind of the, the end of the of the Coney 2012 story is much more characteristic of the way that internet culture moved kind of after that, you know. Right. So the the end point here is the Harambe. So Harambe mm. is the gorilla. I not a, sir, I didn't even follow the story honestly when it happened. And a child uh, somehow got into this uh, gorilla pen, and so the the, the zookeepers or the authorities d- decided to put down the gorilla in order to save the child or whatever. And there was this big sort of liberal outrage. And then there was a response to that outrage, and this was this was the dicks out for Harambe. So maybe explain that to folks if they missed out on that. Okay, so uh, the the typical kind of round of uh, liberal outrage about Harambe uh, happened, and then there was a a pretty quick kind of response to it, which was making fun of it. I mean, making fun of the the need people have to show how concerned and morally pure they are the kind of weird issues that people take up like i mean all of the the terrible things going on in the world this particular issue you know it's kind of absurd to focus on that so it was essentially a parody of it you know Uh, and so people were imitating the ridiculous kind of over-the-top uh concern for harambe and 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 blow the way in which it was uh, blown up into this huge issue as if um as if a genocide had just occurred or something. Uh, and so, but the funny thing is that everyone got in on the parody. Like, it wasn't just a thing on the right, it was across the board. Everyone kind of intuitively understood that the kind of earnest, liberal, kind of showy concern and the whole politics around that were were so ridiculous 
that people immediately loved getting in on the parody of it, you know, which was an exaggerated version of it. And the dicks out for Harambe thing was the most funny, kind of ridiculous version of it. But, you know, people like someone hacked into the the zoo's uh, Twitter and and started (laughs) tweeting out, (laughs) Uh, you know, so it it was great. I mean, it was really funny. It was a really funny parody. But but then the, the other thing which I mentioned in it is that while that was going on, people were actually uh, like Leslie Jones, for example, received uh, abusive kind of racist hate mail, which actually used Harambe. Yes, yes. Uh, for her role in uh, Ghostbusters. Uh, yeah. She received a lot of uh, blowback about her appearance and things like that. Mm, because Milo didn't, uh, Milo kind of went on the warpath against her. So this is why it's so complicated, because everyone's being ironic all the time. Yes, everyone's yes. parodying something or might be, or maybe they're not. Right. It's, it's always impossible to tell. You've mentioned elsewhere, and I don't want to get too much in depth because people can go back and listen to your previous uh, interviews or, or read your articles, but the alt-right started as uh, from these pickup artists. And who was the, was it Roosh mm. V? Mm. Roosh V is a neighbor of mine, actually. He lives right down the street. Really? Um, well, uh, 20, 20, 30 minutes away. Wow. Uh, so tell us about Roosh and those types of pickup artists and then how their sort of uh, thwarted sexual uh, you know, ambitions led to the alt-right of today. Okay. Well, first of all, no matter what you say about the alt-right, somebody is going to say, that's not what the alt-right is, blah, blah, blah. Uh-huh. And they'll have their own interpretation of it. So the thing is, you're talking about something that has emerged across lots of different sites and in lots of like slightly different communities and things. Mm-hmm. So some people might have come to the alt-right entirely through things like 4chan. Okay. Uh, other people may have been far right already, you know, and, and would have come through, uh, you know, I mean, this would be a smaller group, but they might have been on like Stormfront or something like that. Um, right, the Daily Stormer, right. So there was a kind of convergence of real Nazis who were on the sort of those sites and yeah. then sort of like the 4chan hacker nerds, would you say? Yeah, yeah. Gamers and that type of thing. And then and then these like uh, wannabe playboy uh, pickup artists. Yeah, the reason I, I think they're significant is that if you look at the overall arch of like maybe about eight years or so, which is roughly the timeline of my book, where all the energy was in terms of reactionary politics at the beginning was anti-feminism. You know, and and then when you get to the end, it's very much about race. So now what you start to see is alt-right women emerging and the the focus on race is much, much stronger. At the beginning, it was all about women. And this that's quite significant because, um, I mean, the cuck thing kind of is the tie between them in a way, right? Because their view is that white Western males ha- have been emasculated by feminism and civilizational decline is the result. And, right. and, and that also demographic decline, you know, is part of that. So, so that feminism... It, according to them, you know, destroyed Western civilization. And the result is demographic and civilizational decline. This is the flip side of the coin of the Democratic Party in, in the United States. Uh, they, they, they think they have a Democratic uh, time bomb that's working for them, which mm. you know, may or may not be true. And these folks think they have a Democratic time bomb working against them. Yeah, I mean, interesting. I, although it's funny, because a lot of the times, I mean, this is one thing I 
think the alt-right imagine that their constituency is, is going to be like wasps or something like that. But oftentimes the most reactionary groups are the recently assimilated immigrants who hate uh, the new immigrants, you know? So, mm-hmm. so of course, there's the reactionary Irish-American, like, and Irish Ita- or, or American-Italian, uh, you know, right-wingers who, who are much more open about saying things that, that the stereotypical wasp would may, maybe find a bit vulgar to say. And, you know, you find it right across the board, like new, new, uh, newly assimilated immigrants who have become middle class are often the most reactionary. Right. They don't have the sort of legacy of white guilt and liberal shame yeah, of, exactly. of slavery and civil rights and that type of thing that, you know, they, 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 they can say out loud what other people say in hushed tones, you know, maybe behind closed doors. So so you're talking about uh, the, the creation of alt-right. And there's also an alt-light there. And you mentioned Gavin McInnes in the beginning of the interview. So tell us, who is Gavin McInnes? How did he rock, come to fame? And how does he sort of fit in this in this puzzle? Gavin McInnes, uh, I would say, is a bit older than... Uh, quite a bit older than than the average kind of alt-right person. And he's he's what's now called alt-light, um, which is obviously a pejorative <laughs> term. Um, alt-right, but half the calories. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like, what are we talking about here? And so basically, the alt-light would be like uh, Gavin McInnes, who used to be editor of Vice magazine. And he was like the, he, he basically kind of created the hipster aesthetic, or he, he's considered to be the most important person in creating it kind of through Vice magazine and stuff. And he, he then went right wing later on, although I think that trajectory is is not much of a leap, to be honest, because, <laughs> right. you know, it's all so, um, you know, it's like anything edgy is good. Yeah. I mean, how many articles can you write about smoking blunts with ISIS or something like that in, like, <laughs> in 2013 before you just like decide to turn into like kind of like ISIS in the American Yeah, society? but also, you know, a lot of the time when I look at Vice magazine, I think, is this like right-wing propaganda to make millennials look really degenerate <laughs> um but no it would, so. it would seem that way Self, self-owning right there going on. Yeah. <laughs> so so gab mckinnis um and he he was also kind of a comedian he's you know quite funny and he has uh two shows actually one is on rebel media uh and another is a compound which i think he owns yeah i mean he he he's he um got in trouble for 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 kind of too many things to mention but he's he's kind of like a you know very successful like alternative comedian or alternative uh, media guy uh lauren southern who was also on rebel media mm-hmm. she's a very significant figure a big youtube uh, and kind of twitter celebrity uh milo w- was the big star of the alt light and so a lot of these people would be kind of uh, oh mike cernovich is another pretty important one ah uh, yes um, a lot of these people would resist, like, would say that, for example, they would say, we are not racist. Black Lives Matter are the real racists. You know what I mean? Right, right. So, right. so in other words, like, implicitly, they're always rejecting racism or, or basing politics upon, you know, the, the science of race or something like that. Whereas the alt-right are absolutely explicitly saying, no, race is the the most important thing. It's more important than class. It's more important than, you know, nation, anything like that. Well, 
let's talk a little bit about um, the white nationalists. So you sort of mentioned them. They came from the Daily Stormer. They sort of have been hiding in their caves and their militias for the last couple of decades. How, how do they fit? Well, I suppose, um, you know, I mean, there is maybe a dialectical thing going on a little bit where you can see different sections of let's just call it the, I don't want to call it the new right, right? Because that means that people usually associate associate that with the French uh, new right. But mm-hmm. whatever you want to call the right that emerged, kind of that all ended up supporting Trump and that were kind of younger and didn't, and were anti-establishment, we'll say, right? In in America and in, in the mm-hmm. English speaking world. You know, they're, they're all definitely, there is something coherent about them all. Like, so, for example, the the far right end of the alt right wouldn't be impressed with somebody like Milo, even you know before the uh, the scandal about him, you know because he's gay and because he's flamboyant and he. Um, I mean, a funny thing about Milo actually is that he actually uh, he used a lot of the racial arguments that you would find from you know somebody like Richard Spencer or from like Daily Stormer or something like that, and he actually made the case for gays. And mixed race people being the super race, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because he used to say like gays have higher IQ and like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and actually I remember he, he he did this one show about red haired people and how how <laughs> how red haired people were like this, um, you know, inbred sort of like lower race and that people like him basically um, who were <laughs> darker skinned and you know from kind of mixed backgrounds were were really the most beautiful people in the world and that's why everyone wants to look like them uh, so it's funny how all these people end up concluding the group of people that I belong to are the most genetically superior what a funny coincidence that is right? yeah I mean, yeah yeah there, there's no not not even an ounce of British imperialism in in that yeah. uh, in that preference there either <laughs> as a as a I'll hold you back if you if you uh, if you ever see him in person. I don't yeah, know if you'll be able to resist. But for example, like I mean, there is like just to go back to the, the the Daily Stormer and that that kind of end of things. I mean, Gavin McInnes is either naive or he's intentionally covering it up or something. But there is a very significant anti-Semitic conspiratorial streak uh, within mm. this whole thing. I mean. I, I just witness it all the time. I mean, and it's not it's not a handful of guys. It's it's uh I mean I, I get, for example, anti-Semitic conspiracy uh people contacting me all the time saying, Oh, but you have to read this and you have to read that. And you know, for example, after the, the strikes in Syria, you know, when, when the alt right were turning against Trump, uh I remember I said, you know, all you guys on the alt right have been saying have been laughing at Louise Mensch for weeks because she thinks the American government is controlled by Russia. And now you all think the American government is controlled <laughs> by Israel. Right, yeah. You know, and, and yeah. they were they were like, yeah, but we've got the facts and the logic to back it up. And then link uh, linking me to all this crazy stuff. Um, you know, but I was saying, okay, but like evidence that people have lobbied, like everyone lobbies, you know, that's not evidence, like, you know, and, right. you know, or, they, or, 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 I mean, they've all developed this crazy idea that America is like this helpless little pawn being pushed, <laughs> pushed around by everyone else in the world, by smaller countries with smaller economies. I mean, where are they getting this from? Like America's military bases all over the world. Um, during the, the uh, anti-war movement around Iraq, everyone in the anti-war movement understood that uh, this is a, a sort of imperialist venture and that, you know, the, the, the evidence is there that, that America has 
you know, a, a type of an imperial interest around the world with the, the military bases everywhere and that there's strategy going on, you know, in terms of, you know, trying to weaken all the uh, kind of Arab nationalist dictators uh, uh, and all that kind of stuff. So that was the way it was talked about. But suddenly with this one, with the kind of weird alt-right anti-war movement, they seem to think America is like this helpless victim and that even, and, and even within that, the Trump is a helpless victim uh of you know like his daughter told him to do it and all this kind of crazy stuff i mean of course his daughter's liberal tears uh, yeah, you know, yeah influenced yeah. him off off the path of of greatness and yeah yeah i mean it's almost as though they're, they're so wedded to their nationalism that they need to sort of develop these fantastical uh conspiracies to to, to absolve america of any culpability and you know it's so you can blame the illuminati right or you can mm. blame the sort of like uh the the, the jewish conspiracy mm. that, you know that exists Absolutely, something. and and if you read uh, if you read something like uh, Richard Evans, um, the coming of the Third Reich, mm-hmm. you know um, he talks about well, it's not him actually. I think it's just a general kind of consensus among among historians that a very significant factor in the emergence of Nazism was the feeling of being forced to feel guilt, you know, after World War One, um, uh, yeah. and uh, and so the humiliation of being forced to feel guilt is actually a very powerful thing. And I genuinely do feel that it is, uh, it is a, a strong. I mean, I don't want to psychologize it too much because, you know, there are all kinds of other material factors and different things. But on an individual basis, I do think that there is a very strong desire to not feel guilt mm, that is yes, behind yes. a lot of this. So there's a, a cleansing going on here, a psychic cleansing of some sort that that needs to be looked at, maybe. Yeah, and they, I mean, they feel like. Uh, very much like I mean, you know the the Germany uh, in the lead up to kind of uh, uh, the rise of the Nazi movement. You know, I think they do feel uh, humiliated. You know, and you know, there's no point in saying, well, you know, they they can't feel humiliated because they're this really dominant group. But that's that's neither here nor there. I mean, they do feel it. So whether it's imagined or not, uh, I think that is the character of what I see kind of just intuitively that's what it feels like to me right and i think that you, that there is an important general point to take away from this uh, is that you know we like to vilify our opponents we like to you know the ceos or the or the nazis or whatever they wake up and they eat children for breakfast or something like that and, mm. and that might be actually true in some senses but 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 they don't they don't see it that way right they see themselves as the good guys i mean that's important right like whether they are mm. or they aren't that's that's beside the point they create this like uh, imaginary about themselves and culture where they're the good guys they're the saviors they're the wronged and and they're going to vindicate uh, themselves uh, and the world. Mm. Uh, so there's a universalism that goes on there from from that sort of like individualist uh, psychic picture. Yeah, definitely. I mean, for example, they think uh, that the kind of social justice warriors or whatever, the social justice warriors are maybe the youthful, weird, tumblery kind of, of expression of something that goes all the way up to like Hillary Clinton. So mm. basically kind of liberalism, multiculturalism, sexual freedom, all that stuff. They think that those people, let's just call them liberals, are responsible for destroying Western civilization. They feel that Western civilization is just on the brink of collapse um, and that these people are kind of hastening it. They also say, for example, Angela Merkel brought rapists in 
so everyone who gets raped uh, you know what I mean so so like there's no doubt like they do think that that the liberals are the bad guys they think the mm-hmm. liberals are responsible for the terrorist attack attacks that happen they're responsible for any any negative consequences uh, of taking in Syrian refugees and you know uh, and also they do feel very intensely the the collapse of uh, Western civilization but that's a weird question to deal with because you know one of the problems about the alt-right is that they're dealing with that there's no place they won't go in terms of ideas, right? Like they will break every taboo. They'll discuss everything as a virtue. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's almost, yeah. Who who can go where and posting dead bodies and things like that. It's really, really gruesome. Yeah. But the, but, but one of the, the effects of that is that they are discussing things that nobody else is discussing. So for mm-hmm. example, if you think of the whole conversation about Western civilizational decline, you know, you could look at, you know, Spengler right through to somebody like Camille Paglia, like her, her first book mm-hmm. was about Western civilizational decline and kind of um, sexual decadence as a kind of symptom of it or expression of it. Um, you know, and I, and I really don't know, like, I think that's a really interesting uh, thing to be, you know, discussing. And I, I wish a more open conversation were possible about those kinds of things. I mean, it is, sure, sure. you know, I, I I, I can't say, you know, there's a whole conversation about, like, what is civilization? How do you measure civilizational decline? Um, you know, is is a society in which um, millions are, are enslaved and impoverished, but, you know, 10 people turn out to be good composers, is that the height of civilization? You know, mm-hmm. or, um, you know, one thing I always think of when I read Paglia or somebody like that is, yeah, we probably are in decline, but the decline is the only fun bit, you know. <laughs> the the <laughs> the late phase of civilization is the only bit that you'd actually want to live in, you know. So are we all That's supposed right. to just become trad wives and like <laughs> become really austere and like uh you know, throw gays in prison, you know. I mean nobody wants to live in in the society that the alt right actually imagines is going to reinvigorate Western civilization or or bring it back or whatever, you know. So much to say there, but so you, you mentioned the trad wives. I want to get through the the various categories: the trad wives and the trad. I don't know trad trad men. What's the male sort of version <laughs> of that? I don't know. Uh, I, I'm not sure. Maybe there is one. I, I can't think of one right now. There probably is a, a term for it, but I suppose they to them it's just us. <laughs> right. I guess. I guess they they can they can be whatever they want to be. The point is that the wives have to yeah, be traditional. Yeah, yeah. Right. That's the that's the that's the defining feature of, of them, whether mm. or not their wife toes the line. Mm. But, you know, there are, as I was saying, uh, more alt-right women uh, emerging and being open about it. Um, and, you know, what they say is, well, these liberals are bringing in rapists who are going to who are going to rape us. So mm. they're our enemy. Um, not not a million miles from somebody like Milo they would consider debauched and decadent and all the rest of it saying if you bring muslims in they're going to be killing gays uh-huh. right, right you know right. I, I, but the, the the frustrating thing for me is that all you have in response to them is this total hysteria um when in actual fact i mean if i could sit down with them for example and, and actually discuss this which i would actually you know i i people on the left go bananas when you say that but um you know, I'm frustrated at the lack of a serious conversation going on uh, mm-hmm. 
uh, and so everyone is just in their little bubbles, which, you know, um, has been talked about quite a lot in the aftermath of Brexit and Trump. But for example, like, they never talk about the fact that the left in the Middle East was destroyed very intentionally, and that the foreign policy that has strengthened uh, the Islamist movement pretty recently, you know, for example, the F- America funding the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, yes. that was to right. defeat communism. So, you know, they have this idea that there's this kind of like um, natural alliance between the Islamists and the left. If you go to somewhere like Turkey, the left are the ones who are being put in prison. You know, they're the ones who are who are fighting the reactionary uh, movement in their own country, you know. Um, right, right. Uh, so, that I mean, there's so much to say there, but but those conversations are kind of not happening. I talked to Rania Kalik and Ben Norton about this uh, quite a bit, and we didn't get into it as much as I'd like, but you're touching on it there. Like, there, there is a way in which um, Islam becomes this sort of, like, um, universal sort of, like, placeholder for liberal values in, in the United States. Um, and while we, while we are virulently anti, uh, Islamophobic, can you be virulently anti? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm extremely anti Islamophobia here on this show and I won't tolerate any of it if it's legitimate, but, but there's, there, 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 it's not about Islam there. It's about a certain sort of reactionary fascist political movement, um, that is coded in the language of Islam, but it has nothing to do with Islam. And, and, and you're right to point that the left in this country doesn't have a language to challenge that because so much rampant Islamophobia, actually existing Islamophobia, is happening on the ground that we need to sort of be there to defend uh, these marginalized populations at any time. It's a lot harder to make a nuanced argument against like Saudi, Salafis, uh, Saudi Salafists, right? Mm. Or... Or to try to convince people, no, 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 these Syrian refugees are actually fleeing ISIS. Mm. <laughs> ISIS is, are the bad guys here. Yeah. But also, of course, I mean, if you're in a reactionary, ultra-reactionary movement in the West, you probably have more in common with the political Islamists. Well, absolutely. You know yeah, what I mean? They, 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 they're the Western ISIS. Yeah, they, I mean, they've got trad wives question. as well, you know? Yeah, they do. Many trad wives, yeah. Wow. Yeah. But, but of course they, they would never see the connection. So you're pointing to the fact, like if, if you could sit down and talk to these people, you, you might be able to spell that out for them and you could, at the least they, they probably won't agree with you, but you could certainly challenge them in a public forum. And that, that brings me to the next thing that I wanted to talk about really quite important. I think in this, in this moment, and, and this is why this is part three of the series that I'm doing here. Uh, we talked a, little, a lot about no platforming and, and we talked quite a bit about uh, left censorship and how to, how to face down uh, the far right and our conversation has sort of indicated that, you know, these, these people aren't this sort of embodiment of pure evil, uh, absent of ideas or rationality. Like, they actually have a set of ideas. They have an ideology. They project themselves as the good guys in this mm. society, and they create an ideology around uh, these sort of twisted conceptions. And, you know, with that in mind, like, why wouldn't you want to, you know, pick that apart? Why wouldn't you want to face them down in a public forum and 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 uh, shine light on on like their silly rationalizations. Yeah, and and I mean, a really big problem with this is that when we say they, that we're talking about everything from Nazis through to kind of you know basically South Park conservatives, if you uh, like, you know, yeah. you know what I mean. People who just want to be on PC, who hate the social justice warrior thing, people who would go to see Milo talk, but who are basically kind of 
somewhere around the center politically, like that's a pretty huge difference, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And yet they're going to end up now on the same demonstrations. So what we saw for that Patriot Day, uh, we see, depending on your news source, it was either called a free speech rally, a Patriot Day rally, you know, and to me, those indicate slightly different things, but mm-hmm. um, but certainly the, the, the kind of very alt-light, pro-free speech, anti-political correctness thing is quite different from the, the very far end of the alt-right. And if you wanted to have a debate with them, you would be debating very different ideas. Because, for example, if you if you debated Richard Spencer, you would have to be debating like the ins and outs of of like race as a category and this kind of thing. Sure, and you'd probably start talking about social democracy and national socialism and, and development strategies and things like that, right? Yeah, and and whereas if you're talking to somebody like uh, Lauren Southern or Milo. Uh, they're basically libertarians, so um, uh. they, they 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 would just say, "Well, I don't really accept these categories. I don't think race is important. I think it's about liberty." And um, yeah, I mean, liberty is really is really what they're arguing for most of the time. So you have this complicated situation where there's a there's a Patriots Day free speech rally in Berkeley, um, which is in part a response to things that have gone on there over the last couple of months, including the riots over Milo Yiannopoulos's uh, would-be talk. And, um, you know, if they're arguing for free speech, then I agree with them. You know what I mean? If that's their goal, I don't have any problem with that. And I I would support them. The problem is that mixed in with those alt-light libertarians are pretty far-right people doing Nazi salutes, I mean, I'm sure they'll say for the lulls or whatever, but, you know, there, there are pretty far-right people there. So just for example, um, the, the Patriots Day rally, uh, the speakers were Lauren Southern, Kyle Chapman, who's based Stickman, um, <laughs> and... Uh, Internet hero, for those who aren't aware. Yeah, he was beating back uh, uh, Antifa with a stick and a shield and a gas mask, Um but, you know, he became a hero on the politics board of 4chan, which is really far right. Oh, yeah. Uh, and the other speaker was a woman called uh, Brittany Pettibone. I think that's how it's pronounced. Petibone? Mm. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and she's really far right. Uh, she's She has a, a show with uh, a woman called Tara McCarthy called Virtue of the West. Wow. And it's a very strange show because, you know... They're kind of very alt right. They're they're not alt light. They're not irreverent and and kind of jokey like Milo. They're quite serious about. They talk about Western civilization. They talk about yeah traditional marriage and stuff like that. Um, and the two women are like always really softly spoken because they presumably. I mean, it seems like a bit of an affected thing. Like they want to come across as like very feminine. But the stuff coming out of their mouths is horrifying, you know? <laughs> right. And now, is this like a rebirth of like the National Review for the 21st century? I mean, are we are we seeing like a return to an, an, an attempt to make this thing more sophisticated and intellectual? Or, or is this kind of just a pose? I don't know. I mean, I suppose it's a pose, but a lot of these people are quite young. So when you're trying to kind of, when you're in the midst of trying to create a movement, you're going to give it a bit of, 
you're going to inflect it with a bit of style or something, you know, and mm-hmm. and they're trying to do something that isn't jokey and meme and stuff like that. It's 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 like serious and um and they really do talk about the traditionalist end of things whereas, you know, the anime porn guys are not really talking about that too much. So you you raise this sort of contradiction of like do we support these people in, in terms of like their free speech? But that sort of brings up the the sort of impossible question of like does free speech have any content right or is it or is it like sort of a general principle so you know i think that's 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 the hang-up here in, in that christian parenti was very forceful in his uh, defense of free speech as a principle as one that was won by the left uh sort of state non-intervention in uh political acts and thought as as a central tenet for the con- as a condition of possibility even for any sort of left-wing movement um so there's that. But then there, there's another sort of where a lot of my detractors come in and they presume that by supporting the free speech of these people, you are somehow supporting and or responsible for what they say or who ends up being in the group. So that, you know, if there are these sort of like daily stormer Nazis uh, in that group that, you know, that that, that me supporting their fr- by, by me supporting their free speech, I'm somehow supporting them. And it, it seems to me that it's hard to distinguish the two. Uh, okay, so one of the problems is that now we are at a point where fascists and anti-fascists are fighting each other on the street in America. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is a thing that has been in Europe for quite a while. Uh, and there's lots of reasons for that. Part because Europe actually was destroyed by fascism, you know, on, on its own territory. So uh the the kind of memory of that or the you know is actually you know physically written into the buildings and the bullet holes and everything mm-hmm. so so you know the memory weighs very heavily but also there are lots of things like in most european countries you'll have uh football clubs that have that are like political so there'll be a left wing football club and a right wing football club I know this right, sounds crazy, right. but and they actually end up fighting each other. So, for example, at San Pauli in Germany would be the big left-wing anti-fascist football club. Mm-hmm. So, anti-fascists in Europe are often like look like skinheads. Like the funny thing is that it's often like um, kind of joked about that they they all wear the same clothes. You know, <laughs> they are hard to tell apart. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and and so they're a pretty hard bunch, you know, and and everyone just kind of backs off when they when those confrontations happen but they've been happening in Europe for a long time and so it's kind of weird to see it happening uh, in America and I think it's going to be a feature of a lot of these things for for some time you know um which is a sad thing um uh because you know we we may long for the day when it was all done on on social media, you know, <laughs> we might, and I think you know your book, uh, your conclusion, and in, 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 in a little before that, you, you mentioned that this is all sort of a long trajectory, and in some sense, God, I'm going to get so much shit for this. I've been, uh, <laughs> should I say it? Uh, there's a there's a sense in which you have to be, you have to wonder if the actions of the left have not cohere cohered a certain kind of response in the right. Now, now, now before my peak. Critics jump on me. I'm not blaming the left for the rise of the far right. But if you look at this dialectically, you have to see that there's some kind of relationship there. And and Antifa coming out the way that they did uh, during Milo's first talk might uh, might have 
egged on a new sort of qualitative shift that you talk about in your conclusion. Would you would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you fast or if you rewind rather a few years beforehand, you know, we saw like veteran kind of feminists and gay rights activists being uh, vilified for having said the wrong thing. You know, the culture that preceded this on the left, I mean, uh, particularly the campus left, which is very intolerant, very anti-free speech, which said everyone is a fascist. Everyone who doesn't Mm. like me is a fascist. I mean, that was like, has become a joke kind of, but but now, of course, it's like they cried wolf and now the wolf is actually here, you know? Uh, this is Mark Mark Fisher's Vampire Castle that you re- referred to, the late Mark Fisher, uh, unfortunately. Tell us a little bit about, about Mark Fisher and the Vampire Castle and then maybe how that, that castle has uh, yeah, gone bad in a, in a new way. Well, when that piece came out, it was at the absolute height of all this stuff. And one thing I often think the right don't understand is that all of these fights happened within the left as well you know like that essay kind of almost drew a line a battle line between the pro mark fisher people and the anti mark fisher people it did yeah it, it really, really did ugly yeah it was extremely ugly i mean now if you said the things he's saying like i say them mm-hmm. and i would not get anywhere near the kind of abuse that he got mm-hmm. uh, because he made it possible for other people to say it basically and yeah so fisher described the very intense puritanical purging culture that had developed on the left, which the alt-right call like, um, you know, the, the group of people doing the purging, you could say are what the alt-right calls social justice warriors. But, you know, like the, the old socialist left has almost no connection to that whatsoever. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if, if you, if you're in the trade union movement, you probably don't even know what any of these words mean, you know? Uh, It's just an obscure, you know, internet subculture slash campus left kind of liberal thing. It's a very performative uh, way of scoring points and signaling, uh, you know, signaling your purity or your virtue or or whatever else. Yeah, and it's all about culture as well. I mean, you know, it's a kind of an anti-materialism. Right. And... Uh, so that's where I think, you know, materialists have something to really uh, contribute to this whole discussion. Because mm-hmm. um, I think that the the kind of radical anti-materialists of the left and the right are just going to go around in circles forever, you know. Um, so just to give you a particular example, um, I'm very interested in the kind of gender politics of, of the alt-right. And one thing I always notice is that they... Uh, the alt-right and let's say the alt-light and all of them put together think that or they treat feminism as something that just kind of got into the heads of women in the 60s and 70s whereas in actual fact feminism was a product of the massive economic expansion in the post-war period Uh, so so you know suddenly vast numbers of women were going into the workplace um, now, if they want to bring back patriarchy, I mean, they actually use that phrase, they're going to have to get rid of half the workforce. Mm-hmm. Maybe not exactly half, but whatever it is. Um, and how are they going to do that? They're going to shrink the economy um, down to kind of right. the level of, uh, you know, 100 years ago or something. I mean, and more more importantly, as you discussed on Chapo in hilarious fashion, uh, you know, these people, in order to be patriarchs, um, 
they'd have to go to work. <laughs> they'd have to work very, very hard. Yes. No more gaming. No more gaming. No more anime porn. Yeah. Uh, they would have to work 12, 14-hour days and overtime on the weekends to support their, you know, 14 kids, uh, you know, in, in the same way that they, they sort of, you know... They romanticize this 19th century culture, right, yeah. where patriarchy was a thing. But so tell us a little bit about patriarchy and, and what that really was. Yeah. Well, so, for example, you have the old right saying we want to restore patriarchy. Sorry, that's the particular phrase. And then you have their enemies on the other side, also sort of these culture warrior, anti-materialists, uh, leftists saying, no, we have to destroy the patriarchy, we have to smash the patriarchy. Now, to call contemporary Western society a patriarchy, I mean, maybe this is being pedantic, I don't know, but to me that's like saying... I think it's important, yeah, it's very important actually. To me that's like saying we live in a feudal society. I mean, it's just mm -hmm. historically incorrect. It is, you know, it, it, you're simply using a word incorrectly, like, I mean, it's, it's not right. patriarchal at all. Birth rates are absolutely plummeting, you know, um, divorce rates go up and up and up. I mean, like... People are having fewer children. People are experimenting with different family models. I mean, it's just crazy to think that that, that you would describe this as patriarchy, right? And, and I just want to be clear: that does not mean, I'm sure, for you and and for me as well, that does not mean that there aren't some kind of structural forms of sexism or misogyny that exist in culture. But that's where the sort of laziness of the internet left uh, comes to haunt us. I think because this sort of these big terms like patriarchy has has come to stand for so many things that don't necessarily fall under that category in a real historical and material sense. Yes, absolutely. And this is where, you know, a lot of people on the alt right are basically kind of quite smart young people who can see that the explanations that liberals have for our contemporary problems mm. don't make any sense. Mm -hmm, so yeah, they hear yeah. they hear liberals going, we live under patriarchy, and they think, really? I mean... That doesn't really make sense. And, you know, and it goes from there. And they're, they're unsatisfied with the answers that liberals have. And the uh -huh. thing is, they're right to be unsatisfied with them because they're, they, they, you know, the problem is that we have new problems now, but we don't have the ideas to deal with them yet we, because we our, our conversation is, is kind of stunted uh, by just reciting jargon phrases and um, like patriarchy and so on. You know, so for example, right, women face loads of problems today, but but patriarchy is not an accurate description of what they are. So, mm -hmm. you know, for example, what the alt-right are trying to describe there, when they look at the world and they think, you know, as a man, there's no place for me. I mean, in a way, they're right. Like, what they're observing is, I can never afford a house. I could never have a single-income family. Yeah, yeah. I can't afford to take this woman out on a date. Exactly. Or this man out on a date. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you can't afford to do it. You can't afford to do the things that that provide um, a sense of respectability and, and it's sort of your ticket into adulthood. Absolutely. And, and everyone, I think there's this whole really frustrated generation who cannot make the transition into adulthood for economic reasons primarily. Uh, and then the, I think one of the reasons people resented Hillary Clinton so much is because like she kind of represents in a way that 60s generation going, oh, but you can be flexible and have loads of choices, you know, and <laughs> our generation are just going, all we have are notional choices, like, mm -hmm. but we can't afford to do anything like we can't become adults. We can't have a house. We can't have a family. We, we can't do the most basic things that our parents were able to do. And so, you know, for women, for example, uh, you know, it, it's very hard to know as a woman what what to what to do at this point because 
on the one hand, you have this kind of corporate feminism telling you, you know, just keep working and then when you have your career, you can have kids. But the the time period that it takes to get on this sort of endless ladder, it just goes on and on and on and suddenly you're in your mid-30s. So anyway, there are all of these problems facing women right now, which are huge yeah. and which, you know, we really, I wish we were having a more sophisticated conversation about. And those problems intersect with the problems of men that we just described. Yeah, right? absolutely. I mean, they intersect and their they're structurally, their structural causality is, is, is very similar. Mm. Um, of course, the, you know, I, I can hear the intersectionalists in the back of my head right now. You know, I have all these different people who live in my brain. Do you have the same problem? <laughs> oh, right? yeah, yeah. I, I have, I've, oh, God, I don't even want to know who lives in your brain after all the time you spent <laughs> on 4chan. <laughs> oh, it must be horrifying in there. But uh, I have all these people who live in my brain. And so the intersectionalist in, in the back of my brain is like, ah, oh, but Adam, but women's, uh, you know, people, uh, problems are different. And women of colors uh, problems are different. But, but, and that's true, Yes. There's a sort of historical contingency there, but you know there there are more connections between the problems that these alt right men are facing and and these and these sort of millennial women are facing. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and and I think neither side is going to answer these problems by not ever discussing the material prob- the the material causes of them. I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, so for example, you know, I can see why a lot of them feel that they don't have a role and they feel hopeless and everything, and they then point to feminists and they say it's their fault because they. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that is so historically inaccurate. I mean, that they they ruined what we had good. Yeah, in the world yeah, yeah. They ruined it. Like now, okay. So first of all, you have what I said earlier: feminism was not just a random idea that everyone had it was a product of economics it was a product of 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 economic modernization and feminism in a way was the movement that tried to theorize it or create a uh you know the, the the early kind of second waivers were all asking okay everything's changed now how do we how do we live uh, mm-hmm. now that everything is different, basically? Right, so we need to update our our experience given these changes, right? Somehow our experience has, as women has lagged behind the changing world, Yeah, um, which is a very different sort of historical uh, narrative from the one, the opposite that the alt-right seems to offer. Yeah, I mean, like Jermaine Greer would talk about like the overwritten uh, slate or whatever that, you know, mm-hmm. w- women were uh, had all of this traditional baggage, but the new circumstances they found themselves in meant that 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 i suppose the um that those were clashing in some way um Uh. you know uh, uh, but i guess um one of the things that i think the another thing that i think the alt right gets so wrong about feminism is that what really changed everything was the sexual revolution i mean feminism had a critique of the sexual revolution within it and by the time you get to the 80s feminism is in total revolt against the sexual revolution with andrea dworkin and people like that um Mm, and so you know the the you know if you look at like the 60s the sexual revolution if you look at like the rolling stones or something like that i mean these were like men who really wanted to be free you know and really wanted sexual freedom uh, and that was their, you know, uh, that was something that they celebrated. Um, I, I, I don't think a lot of these guys who think, I mean, first of all, they're wrong that it was feminism that that kind of changed everything. Um, but also, and, 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 you know, they see themselves as the passive victims of feminism, or they see men as, <laughs> as the passive victims. But really, I mean, men were very much involved in the sexual revolution, and with good reason, because they said, you know, I don't want to be tied down to a family at 20, you know, and Mm -hmm. slave Mm -hmm. for the rest of my life in, you know, 
to to provide for this uh, gigantic family or whatever um you know men wanted freedom and why wouldn't they you know so right so we had the opposite then right so now the ticket to entry we can't afford but back then like the ticket was pretty easy to cash in but it also meant sort of sort of your, your ticket to sexual exploration and and adulthood was also sort of like a, a chain around your ankle in a, in, a, in a death sentence in the end, really. So they, they wanted they wanted uh, the freedom uh, that we have now, but yeah, it's, it's, it's wild. Well, now wild. now we have all the freedom, but we we don't have any. But the real unfreedom is the fact that our economic constraints are, you know, and the economic decline that seems to be happening is kind of mm. makes all those freedoms meaningless. So, for example, right. you know, uh, in the 90s, there was this big thing about flexible labor. You could, like, be creative and you could go to Thailand and be a digital nomad and all that kind of stuff that everyone was, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. kind of like corporate 60s almost. Um, yeah. and that's, that's the freedom, the freelancer freedom that we get in Sex in the City, right? It's, yeah, it's totally. so sexy and fun and in. in wild right yeah and i think now everyone younger people kind of just realize this is an absolute scam um yeah, it was a trap yeah it was a trap yeah yeah angela mcrobie's uh be creative is a really fantastic mm. book i don't i don't know if you were alluding to that when you said be creative but uh um if not folks should check out that book to under to to make sense of of that flexibilization of labor and mm. the sort of cultural um, impacts of that. But sorry, yeah, go on. Um, I think we're on a really interesting thread here. If I might jump in just really quickly, mm. you're, so you're talking about a certain kind of patriarchy essentialism that both the left and the right fall for. And I think we're really getting to, to the, the, the important moment here. And you know, this is a three-part series, and and my next couple of series are, are going to continue to attack various forms of essentialism. So I think my next series is probably going to tackle uh, racial essentialism, mm. right? And then, you know, certainly we're going to get into gender and other types of things as well. So it seems that liberalism and, and, and even the far left right now, we're fa- we, we have an, uh, an argumentative deficit. We and, and instead of having arguments and a logic and a content underlying this and a material with a materialist analysis and a cultural analysis, instead of that, we have these sort of um, jargony buzzwords that don't really have any logic or argument, but they're backed up by a sense of moralism. Mm. So if you so the point is is like you know you can say you know smash patri- patriarchy, but you have to believe that patriarchy exists in the way that you're framing it. Mm. And so if you don't believe that. Well, then it's meaningless. There's no argument. Mm. You know, it's totally grounded in just uh, a feeling, mm. which can be very easily cast aside, trolled, uh, you know, made fun of uh, by the alt-right. And it, so it seems like we're setting ourselves up for this. It, it, that seems to be the, the, the core of your argument. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, the reason that particularly people like Milo were able to get such a following is that he just you know, put a pin in like these really obvious bad ideas that were just kind of floating around and nobody wants to really, well, I don't know. On the one hand, I think nobody wants to take them on because they're just these fossilized sort of ideologies that that haven't been completely toppled yet, even though they have been challenged by different people down the years. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, But another part of me thinks one of the reasons they're hanging around is because we haven't thought of new ideas that are more compelling uh and so really i feel like you know we all the ideas that we have right now come from the 60s i mean smash the patriarchy comes Mm -hmm. from the 60s you know um but our world has changed because it has been so profoundly changed by the 60s Mm -hmm. i mean i really like you know the kind of analysis 
that recognises that the time we're living in is a fusion of the corporate and the countercultural. Um, You know what I mean? We're not living in some traditionalist 1950s world. Like, you know, we, we live in a society in which the dominant ideology is on a cultural level coming from the counterculture of the 60s, but it has it, it's it's fused with capitalism and with, you know, so for example, the flexible labor thing, the, the creative flexible labor thing, that is precisely a fusion of those two things. So I think that we have to, I think that's, I mean, where my thoughts are going at the moment. That's the general direction I, I'm kind of going in because, you know, I just, nobody finds these things convincing anymore when, when mm-hmm. people try to tell you that, that you know we're 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 like oppressed by a patriarchal, you know, really traditional um, system. I mean that that's just not true anymore. And 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 the and the figures bear it out. The divorce rates, the um, you know the the um, people's kind of sexual patterns, uh, and and you know the thing is, capitalism will always give you culture. You know, you can be as countercultural as you want. Oh, yeah. You can have as you can you know. Uh, choose your own sexuality you can have as many sexual partners as you want you can wear whatever you want uh you can identify as anything you can like you know uh travel wherever you want and and on and on and on uh you know express yourself through your kind of creative consumer choices and all that kind of stuff uh the thing that it can't give you it are the things you need materially and so i just think i'm not interested anymore in any of the the liberal countercultural stuff. I I think the area that that neither of these groups in the culture wars are talking about is the material realm, um, and I think that is really the place where what I consider to be the real left has you know a, a real space to like make an interesting argument mm-hmm. and 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 kind of show an alternative to these actually very ugly um, sides of the culture wars that are just going on and on and kind of getting nowhere. Yeah, it seems to me, I mean, I, I agree wholeheartedly in, in, in what you just laid out the mission of, of this podcast. Um, I mean, sort of pushing that agenda is, is, is what I, I'm doing this for, uh, to be honest, and which is why I'm having uh, guests like you on to, to help me with that uh, in a really articulate uh, way. But, but it also seems to me that if you abandon that cultural warrior uh, mentality, you will be immediately slandered and slurred. As you know, being uh, all of the phobics and is- isms and, and and you know racist, misogynist, transphobic. It's, so it's like if you don't openly feel harder and and express your virtue constantly, then you therefore necessarily don't care about people's individual oppression. And, you know, you, you point to, to intersectionality. Um, I'm going to have some shows uh, coming up in the, in the future to sort of interrogate this this tradition of intersectionality. For those who, who may or may not be aware, it's, it sort of originated as a legal theory and critical legal studies. A lot of people point to the Kambahi River Collective and, and other, other types of more marginal appearances of that. But, I mean, really, I hate to say this. I'm going to get a lot of shit for it. I really think that's kind of revisionist. I mean, really this sort of like intersectionality arose from the sort of historical period that you're, that you're talking about in the 1960s and seventies. It it emerged in the civil rights act of 1964, which was an incredibly important victory. But like in order to look at history, I think, you know, in a more nuanced way, you have to look at like 
this is a phrase I use a lot on the show and it's not mine, but I love it. Uh, you have to look at the contradictions of success mm. and that, yes, these movements for li- various, you know, forms of liberation that occurred in the 1950s, 60s, uh, these were good, <laughs> you know, lest I be uh, confused, fuck segregation, right? Like, <laughs> come on. But ending segregation was a good thing. But the way in which that it was ended has spurred on a, a set of contradictions that that have put us in a real bind. And, and, and I think that you're absolutely correct to the point to the fact that we just don't have the language uh, to even sort of describe this impasse. Yeah, and even uh, I remember actually, I think it was John Oliver um, who pointed out that uh, basically the most segregated parts of America are the most kind of liberal coastal parts, you know, segregated in the sense that not legally, but but mm-hmm. actually, I suppose, um, you know, so, so segregation can continue without uh, being uh, there in a formal legal sense. Mm-hmm. Um and it can continue while everyone's going, oh, choice, we're all making choices and, you know, um, we're all um, free and so on. You know, like, I don't know. I just think that, it, like, I don't have the answers to these things, but I'm sure that the other people don't have them either. And I very much feel that what characterizes this whole moment, that all these kind of crazy political flare-ups are happening, is that we actually don't have the ideas to understand the time we're living in and we need to and the only way we're gonna we're gonna come up with better ideas that can really give us a um you know a way forward that might be able to actually improve people's lives and actually work is that we have to have an open conversation and that is has Mm -hmm. not been possible for many years i think there might be more of an opening for it starting to emerge and that's a really good thing but uh, this is why I do support free speech. You know, I think um, uh, if you look at something like Brexit, I'm going to go off on another tangent now. Sorry. Um, Very topical for you right now. I'm sure. Yeah. Well, if you look at something like Brexit, I mean, the, the, the pro-EU people barely even turned up to make an argument for, for themselves. Like, mm-hmm. the, and this is what happens. You see it with the neocons as well, the rise and fall of the neocons. Movements start off with, big intellectual energy they, they've they've kind of they have some interesting analysis of the world they've got new ideas they've got all this energy they don't have to be big in number when people say to me the alt-right is is small in number i always say well the neocons were small in number that that's not important it's that they have they have intellectual energy um and then what happens is the movement uh well hopefully this won't happen with the alt-right but let's say in the case of like the european union i'm talking i'm thinking of you know, it becomes uh, so powerful and so lazy and decadent and smug in its in its position of power that it actually forgets why it exists. Like it, it, it it's not it's no longer producing passionate advocates, mm-hmm. um, and they just think, well, this is so self evidently great that everyone should just mm-hmm. go along with it. The, the, what what is happening? It, when you see these movements getting rejected because they they become lazy and they're no longer able to make the case for themselves, and you know right now that is basically Western liberalism. Uh, a really strong analogy um, that I can see in Ireland is actually the, the Catholic Church. You know, if you think of in Ireland, in when my parents were growing up, the 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 absolute iron grip that the Catholic Church had over people 
over the culture and over individuals was so strong that uh, very good, decent people looked the other way when women and children were being, you know, abused horribly in, in institutions and so on. So, mm-hmm. so that's how powerful it was. And yet the Catholic Church collapsed in no time because when the scandals hit, um, they had become so, as I say, decadent and, and kind of smug in their position of authority that they forgot to actually, they, they, they forgot to, they didn't learn how to make the case for themselves. So the Catholic Church were terrible at, at, at defending their continued existence. Just like the, the, the European Union people when before the Brexit referendum, I can't remember a single pro-European person making a good case for it. Not one. And liberalism in America is just the same right now. It's in that decadent phase it doesn't know mm-hmm. why it why it started in the first place you know uh, and so it, it's kind of like a zombie it's just going on but but um you know so so that is going to collapse in some form um yeah, yeah. you know and i don't know what will come next but um yeah and liberalism is holding together particularly the neoliberal strand is holding together a contradiction of personal freedom and the inability of most people to to do anything with that freedom, yes. as you've mentioned, and right contradictions. Being a good Marxist, uh, contradictions don't last forever. Yeah, they have to, something has to burst asunder. Of course, that doesn't mean that things have to go get better. They can always get worse. Oh yeah. Um, and, you know, so yeah, this is really good. I'm glad we I'm glad we were having this talk because I really I'm going to come out of this with a slightly different uh, viewpoint. And that you know I, I sort of came into this with the idea like okay. <laughs> And this is what makes me very unpopular in some segments of the left is that like, you know, these 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 alt right folks like we saw in the Ber- Berkeley skirmish, they're toy Nazis. Uh, they don't have any real street power. These are not the brown shirts of 1930. They, they are not sort of like these militarized um, uh, paratroopers, shock troopers of the far right, you know, of established parties and fascism and things like that. So, you know, uh, going to war with them in the streets is just kind of, it's like LARPers. Right, mm-hmm. these uh, these live uh, action role playing p- padded weapons, uh, sort of nerds. They go around and beat each other up in fields and things like that. Yeah. Um. But 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 you seem to be painting a different picture. I mean, I, I think you probably wouldn't agree with that. Correct me. Sorry, wouldn't disagree with that assessment. But you're you're you seem to be claiming that the alt right is dangerous because they really do have their finger on a contradiction and they're articulating it in a way in a forceful way that no one else is. Yeah. Uh, even if they're wrong, and even if they're incredibly reactionary and disgusting and vile and all the rest of it, they are at least making attempts where no one else is. And so that's, yeah, that's, this, is, this has been eye-opening for me. Um, yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly it. Um, and, I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot, like, because I, I, I know that, you know, there's this vacuum left um, because the whole... Mm, liberal neoliberal thing is kind of collapsing so there's this vacuum there and the let's just call them cultural left the culture war is left they don't get it like they, 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 their analysis is not good um i i never listen to them and think oh yeah that's a sh- they, they've really they've really got this they've really nailed this mm-hmm. their analysis is so weak because they are totally ideological they're they're simply not able to think clearly i mean to be right. sort of patronizing about it (laughs) their grounding is is affective yeah it's 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 moralistic whereas you know like as we as we were talking before it should be grounded in arguments and logic and history and strategy instead it's grounded in like 
uh, it's grounded in these weird metaphors. Like fascism is this thing that we need to smash mm. as though it were a watermelon and we were Gallagher, you know, on stage back in the 90s or something. Like, sm- yeah. <laughs> like what is there to smash? Like people's skulls? Like, mm. I don't know. Like in some cases, maybe I might get down with that, but I don't think that's going to solve the uh, historic impasse that we find ourselves in. Yeah, and, and you know, I think that the best, uh, the only kind of route that I can see that will be productive and that is a space for the left to fill um, is one that recognizes um, that contradiction uh, and that offers um, a material uh, as opposed to a radically anti-materialist view of how we can solve it, make it better, come up with something new. It's definitely the I, I think essentially you have to reject both sides of the culture wars. I mean, when you say yeah. that, people go, oh, but so you're comparing liberals to Nazis. No. <laughs> right, right. I'm not saying anything other than what I'm actually saying, which is that neither side of the culture <laughs> wars it has it right. You know, um, the alt-right don't have it right either because they're saying we can culture our way out of the problem. Mm-hmm. And that's not right. true. We can't culture our way out of the problem going either to the left or the right. So, like, maybe we need to change society or, you know, something like that. <laughs> yeah, the answer is, is a material one. You know, our, our problems are based in material conditions. I mean, I'm not even dogmatic about that normally. I Normally, when I hear people on my side who are dogmatic saying material conditions, I'm always like, ah, yeah, <laughs> I've heard yeah, it all yeah, before. Yeah. It's it's a it's a crusty guy from the SWP, right? Yeah, who, yeah, who yeah. hasn't read anything since the the 1960s. Yeah, exactly. But in this case, I mean, I really have come to this conclusion in such a roundabout way. Like, I I really think this is the only route out of the culture wars. Yeah. I think we've tried. I think I mean I can't speak for I don't know your past in activism and politics, but I know for myself, like I've tried the other route. Mm. Um, and, and I've failed and I, I recognize the failure and I've had to sort of like learn from it and go. So I want to, I want to get your rebuttal on something because one of the things that I've been hearing over the past week since I've been airing my first two episodes is, okay, Adam, you're down with a materialist analysis. Well, how about this? These people are defending their communities against Nazis and how dare you ever speak out against somebody like that? You're just one of those liberals. You believe that change can only happen in the ballot box. Um, yeah. I have my own set of rebuttals with uh, w- w- to that sort of line of argument, but but what do you say to that? Well, first of all, the the situation that we've got ourselves in is is a result of the fact that the anti free speech people have called everyone a Nazi and not let anyone speak for so long. Now, as I said, the wolf has actually arrived. We actually do now have, you know, mm. uh, you know, people who who have these beliefs on the street who are violent and so on. And of course, America has like a dominant or a um, dormant kind of a militia movement and stuff like that. I mean, God, if, I mean, this could be terrible if, if it keeps going, you know? Um, So we don't have the guns. They do. Yes. Yes, (laughs) exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the left is, the left will lose that battle, you know? Yeah. There's a lot of macho sort of armaments, uh, arming of, of, you know, um, of marginal populations that's going on in inner cities and in rural communities. And some of these people are friends of mine and I support it. Like, why not? Why wouldn't you get a gun? I mean, if, if, if you felt like, you know, Nazis were, were, were going to knock down your door maybe one day, but I don't know, like that's never going to be enough. Like they have so many more weapons than mm. we do. <laughs> and also I would say, you know, regardless of your position on how to deal with that stuff on, 
on, on pacifism or violence or whatever, regardless, you have to make an argument for your position. Even if you're totally in favor of smashing the fash and everything else, right? Mm -hmm. You still right. have to make an argument for your position or you will lose. Yeah, so it seems to me that this like censorship that's been going on, this anti-free speech that's been going on in the left in the, over the last 20 years or so, it, it has this effect that you're pointing to. It has an internal effect as well, right? So it's not just that like, oh, we need to shut down the fascists. In arguing that like we should no platform and censor the speech of, of these disgusting people on the right, we implicitly stifle discussion within the left. Mm. That like these are not people that need to be engaged with. We need to no platform them. Mm. Therefore, if you want to discuss them, then somehow that's out of bounds as well. And you know, and there's all sorts of slurs that 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 we I've talked about in previous episodes, like speech bro, mm. and the well actually bro, and, and like all of these slurs and slanders that 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 are basically just meant to shut down like debate and discussion about strategies and tactics and analysis mm. inside the left. And so what they end up doing is like I've since I've dropped these last episodes with Parenti and DeBoer, I've been accused of being a cop. I've been accused of being, um, you know, a proto neocon, like all of these, a transphobe, all these things like these people can't. So, right. Like they would rather just like shove me out of the legitimate left than allow me to, to try to spark a debate. It's, it's really bizarre. Yeah. And the thing is, right. I think the, okay. With the free speech thing, I think the problem is that if you make the case for free speech, what they hear is you saying, well, I don't care that much either way. It doesn't matter to me if they're fascist speaking. Everyone should just hang out at home and like do nothing. Right. And it's the assumption is that it's, it's my privilege that allows me, that affords me the opportunity to do that as, yeah. a, as, a, as a straight white male. <clears throat> so maybe the, the thing is to try and be clearer about saying, I think that the tactic that is currently being employed will lead to us losing. Mm -hmm. And I want to employ a tactic that will lead to us winning. Wow, that's that's just so clear and easy. It should have been obvious, but the way you <laughs> yeah, because because it, it is always misinterpreted as you yeah. going, uh, I don't really care, right. and that's not at all what I'm saying. I, I'm mm -hmm. trying to think of why what is working, what is not working, and as I said, you know, let's even put aside the particular question of tactics and just agree on one thing which is that uh no matter how pacifist or violent or whatever you think you should be or you think the movement should be mm -hmm. uh you must make an argument for your movement for why people should support you for why mm -hmm. you're right once mm -hmm. you stop doing that you are in that very dangerous phase that i'm talking about when i talked about Brexit and the Catholic Church and all that. You're in the phase where you're just about to lose because you've you've uh, kind of unlearned how to actually uh, make the case for why your movement should exist or why anyone should support you. And, you know, look back at like James Baldwin, like, uh, or Jermaine Greer or, um, you know, uh, any of these people like uh, absolutely amazing public debaters, amazing orators. Mm -hmm. you, you listen to them and you're like, you know, you want to stand up and cheer. Like, you know, they're absolutely brilliant. We have to be producing people like that, you know? Yes, yeah.
And we're not going to do that if we don't even allow any internal uh, discussion of any significance. Wow, well said. And it seems that the the preference uh, the preference of our generation uh, on the left is to raise up uh, folks who advocated, like say, violent armed struggle, right? And so there's there's not so much Jermaine Greer, but there's a lot of Asada Shakur. And mm. there's nothing wrong with Asada Shakur. Free Asada Shakur. I mean, my God, I'm totally on board with that, right? But if we look at like, maybe we need to balance that out a little bit more, right? Like maybe instead of just trying, instead of just always sort of, you know, reverting to being trying to be the most radical person in the room, maybe we need to find a way to sort of connect and still make, you know, radical arguments. Who's going to call James Baldwin like a, a, you know, a sellout or a conciliatory, you know, schmuck, right? Like, hell no, there's nothing conciliatory about his rhetoric. And yet he went on, you know, primetime television to make those arguments. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what they're doing is like, I don't know. I mean, to be kind of ungenerous about it, I feel like what they're doing is basically <laughs> they're they're like liberals who have co-opted the language of anti-fascism mm. in order to excuse their own intellectual laziness. Well, I wasn't going to say it, but since you did. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll finish here with one last question. It could, might go a little longer, five five or ten minutes or so, but the conclusion of your book is is really fantastic and, and just one more quick plug we've gotten away from the specific topic of your book but it's it's well written it's a pleasure to read i only got a hold of it uh, last night that was my fault i only asked you for it last night and you very kindly sent me the proofs um but but i, I read it as much as i could it's 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 a fun read um it's interesting you draw a lot of different sort of like cultural and and, and political uh, uh f- features into the argument in, in interesting ways even philosophical types of arguments mm. um just go buy the damn book. I don't know. I mean, I could fawn about it. I mean, I'm being genuine here. I read a lot of books and I have a lot that I start reading and I'm like, nah, this is not one of them. Go buy it uh, as soon as it's available. But in the conclusion, it's quite moving because you open up uh, talking about the late Mark Fisher, mm. um, who was who near and dear to me. Uh, I, I read his Vampire Castle article, you might say, at just the right moment. Mm. Like it was one of those times, you know, sometimes in life you, you come across an argument or you come across an article at just the nick of time. Mm. I needed to I needed to read that because mm. I was faced with this really bizarre kind of like uh, toxicity that was going on and, and the privilege checking and in the, the way that the left was cannibalizing itself and and I was a frequent victim of of these types of things being a, a white male Marxist that I am um, even in the case of like fighting for against racism and other types of things I immediately became the target I guess because I'm like the whitest straightest guy in the room mm. right so so like instead of going after an actual existing Nazi like no well there's Adam he's sitting in the corner he's here let's go after him instead you know like yeah. it's that that I'm gonna prove my bona fides by going after this guy because I can see him right now or, or whatever right like mm. there's a little bit of that that goes on Oh, and, and also they know that you will be hurt by those yeah. accusations, whereas... Good point, yes. Yeah, yes. some Nazi guy is just going to be like, yeah, I am a racist. What's your point? Yeah, f- fuck off. Leave the country. I hate you, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I, whereas, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll certainly fight back and I'll be hurt by that. Um, so I came across the Vampire Castle article. If you haven't read it, I'll link to it in the show notes. You need to read it. Uh, there are a lot of people who have a lot of very bad ideas about this. And you made a funny remark earlier in the show where you said... Uh, I'm only saying something to the effect of I'm only saying exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. No more, no less. Yeah. 
Well, that's a very that's a very radical thing, a radical <laughs> statement. Because nobody is ever to a nobody ever listens to what you say, and b nobody ever reads what you write, but they'll attack you anyway. Oh, I know. Every time, make. every time you make a statement, you have to immediately deal with somebody saying, "Ah, so you're saying." something that you didn't just say. And I always just want to say, no, I'm saying what I just said. (laughs) No more, no less. Uh, Mm -hmm. At least you get the benefit there that they heard you and they listened to what you were saying, which is one step above the person who chimes in and comments on an article that they've never bothered to read or a podcast they've never bothered to listen to, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which that happens a lot as well. In any case, I read the Vampire Castle article exactly at the time that I needed to hear it, and it, it, it helped me articulate uh, the state of the left that I was sort of suffering under, that we were all suffering under. Mm. Um, and even the people who were attacking people were eventually the victims of other attacks. Mm. I mean, there was really this left cannibalism that was mm. going on. It was really disgusting. Mm. Um, and so when I insinuated that, like, I'm a little concerned that there's a, a, there's a transformation and a, and a reemergence of this type of social justice warrior, uh, this extremely online leftist of this this toxic uh, intra left cannibalism. When I say there's a reemergence, what I mean is like we suffered through that in 2012, 2013, and that seems like just yesterday. But there are a lot of people who are coming to the left for the first time mm. today. And so even five years ago, a lot of people have trolled me saying, "Oh, five years ago, oh you're so wise, tell us more." And it's like, yeah, but five <laughs> years ago on the left was kind of like. Uh, it was kind of like a century ago in terms mm. of political time. And, and, uh, but I'm seeing the reemergence of this and your conclusion speaks to it. So mm. you write, uh, there is no question but that the embarrassing and toxic online politics represented by this version of the left, which has been so destructive and inhumane, has made the left a laughingstock for a whole new generation. Years of online hate campaigns, purges, and smear campaigns against others, including an especially dissident or independent-minded leftist, such as you and I, has caused untold damage. This anti-free speech, anti-free thought, anti-intellectual online movement, which has substituted politics with neuroses, well said, can't be separated from the real-life scenes uh, that millions saw online on college campuses uh, and wish to be uh, th- where the right was made uh, something exciting and fun and courageous. Um, so we, what you're getting at here is I could go on and on and on. Go go buy the damn book. <laughs> <laughs> what you're getting at is that uh, we, in some senses, created the alt-right. We gave them the ground on which they could claim as being exciting, fun, and courageous. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that was... You know, <clears throat> Milo's celebrity, uh, although it's kind of over now, but his celebrity was would have been impossible without that. Um, he was always able to point to, you know, ridiculous arguments, absurd behaviors, and everyone could go, oh, yeah, I recognize what he's talking about because somebody started mm. yelling at me for, you know, um some like subconscious sexism and I don't know what they were talking about or whatever, you know, um, Mm -hmm. everyone kind of could relate to what Milo was talking about. Um, and so even if they didn't want to be right wing or whatever, um, they, they were still able to say, yeah, I know what he means. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, it was a very damaging time. And I think a lot of people, uh, who were maybe coming into politics for the first time at that time, 
we're probably turned off of the left forever. I mean, mm-hmm. um, you know. And, oh, God, I almost was. I mean, yeah. I've dedicated my life and my career to this. And God, I thought about walking away so many times. Yeah, I had a lot too. of tough conversations over many beers mm. in, in that in that era. Mm. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So well, one of the instant rebuttals that you get to what the kind of line of argument that we thought about, and we'll finish with this because I like to do a so what do we do kind of moment, mm. right? What, what's to be done? So the rebuttal is that, well, are you saying, so if you're saying that we in some senses sort of laid the groundwork for the emergence of the alt-right, are you then saying that racism and oppression doesn't exist? To which I answer, of course not. It exists. I mean, come on. Like all of the processes that we're talking about produce racialized exploitation and all types of other uh, hatred that is utilized for political projects and and so on and so forth. So then the, the question is, well, then what are we supposed to do? If, if getting online and shouting about this as loud as I can seems to be the most cathartic thing I can do, if you're telling me that I shouldn't be doing that, like what else should I be doing? How do you think people should face down this actually existing uh, racism and oppression? Um, <clears throat> I remember Richard Spencer being uh, giving a talk. I think he was during a questions and answers thing. And somebody said, you know, something along the lines of like, how can you hate these people who are like doing all the really... Uh, low-paid labor and like you know picking the vegetables and so on and I remember him saying really angrily and he's normally very controlled he said something like we can pick our own damn vegetables you know and I thought Mm. hang on you're not picking anything no his pretty little fingers are you kidding me his uncalloused hands come on exactly so his whole sense of the we there is people with my skin color who I would never I am never going to meet. I'm never mm. going to drink in the same bar as them. I'm never going to do the same work as them. Um, you know, uh, so I think it's a kind of an old fashioned dogmatic answer, but I really do think that economics and class are, you know, the only real viable solution to the real dead end of the culture wars. And, you know, if, you know, the, there are, we'll say patterns within economics uh, in terms of who's doing what types of labor and, you know, housework and and caring work and all kinds of stuff. I mean, um, then, then that means that the, the, the groups that are the most oppressed have the most to gain from economic advancements to um, those who do all the labor, but don't get any of the, the value that they create. Yes, absolutely. That is the underlying, uh, uh, if the show had a motto, that would be it. Um, that, it does, I, you know, I don't know what transcends the particularities of identity any better than like the provision of social goods to mm. people who need them the most. I mean, and, and, and if that, if that makes me some kind of class essentialist, then so fucking be it. Cause I don't see any other way. Uh, as, I, as I've written elsewhere, like we don't have access to the ideas in people's heads. Yes, exactly. I yeah. can't punch the Nazi out of someone. Absolutely. But what I can do is I can argue that we need to provide for a certain set of social, political, and economic standards that can that can defang the um, the the sort of racist and and misogynist. Uh, impulses that, that that lead to the development of these political projects, which is always, you know, austerity and scarcity and, and these other types of things. 
Yes, and and we really have to be coming up with better arguments than the culture war is left is coming up with. Yeah, because they're so self-evidently terrible and so self-evidently contradictory nonsense and everyone can see it and all that has to happen is somebody like Milo a clever guy who wants to be famous could come along and go ah I'm going to expose this it's so easy it's low hanging fruit and he does it and he becomes a celebrity overnight uh, but Milo was exposing something real which is the weakness of liberal ideas and the 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 very weak state that liberalism is in now in the west so it's a very important time and i i'm not that interested in necessarily having these endless debates with the with the cultural left or whatever i, I my thing now is i'm going to try and write as much as i can and try to come up with something new i mean not just say yeah we need class and analysis and materialism and all that kind of stuff Mm-hmm. but to actually explain new problems that we face that are a product of the the marriage the fusion of cultural liberalism and capital um i think that's where we need to to go well that's an excellent rallying point um i've really appreciated this conversation i've i've sort of exposed myself uh you know i've, I've i'm <laughs> in ways that you know it's just kind of like not so hip to do anymore but i've I've learned a lot and um, i think we're all grappling with these questions and i think Mm. people will enjoy sort of being a fly on the wall of our conversation and they'll learn a lot um you're you're sort of helping us uh think through these things in in really novel and interesting ways so thanks again for talking to us thanks so much for having me And that was our show. Thank you so much for listening. I just want to give extra bonus credit to Angela Nagel, not only for being fucking awesome and incredibly intelligent, but also because as most of you will have heard at the end of the episode, Angela was fighting off a cold and she was about to lose her voice at the end of the episode. (laughs) But she, you know, she was a trooper and she kept going. She kept dropping knowledge and I really appreciate uh, everything uh, that she does for us here. And and I learned a lot, and I think you all probably did as well. So thanks again to Angela for those insightful comments. One more reminder, if you get a chance and you want to hear the entire interview with Angela Nagel, go on Patreon.com and join. Become a member of the Dead Pundit Society. That's Patreon.com slash Dead Pundits. You can become a subscriber for $3 a month. $5 a month or $8 a month. Uh, we appreciate anything that you can give. Doing a podcast is really expensive. The costs start to add up very quickly, particularly when I start producing these long fucking episodes. <laughs> so whatever you can donate to the show, I really appreciate it. And you're going to get some award, uh, rewards rather along the way. So, hey, it's a win-win. Next week, I'm telling you right now, you guys, if you, if you like this show, you're going to want to tune in next week. I just did a really amazing interview with the uh, tireless Jane McAlevey. Jane is a labor organizer extraordinaire. You guys are just, I mean, I don't know. I say this all the time. You're not going to want to miss it. Tune in, set your calendars, whatever you have to do. Jane McAlevey drops all the knowledge. Uh, You know, if we all just uh, paid more attention to Jane, we'd probably uh, live in a socialist society tomorrow. So you're not going to want to miss that. Subscribe to my Patreon. Tune in next week. Thanks again, everybody, for all your support. It means the world to me. 
tell your friends, share the show on social media, phone your grandma, whatever you got to do. Till next week, Dead Pundit, out. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother... <laughs>